Besides Ephesians 1 today, let's turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, to be exact. We're going to be interweaving some of Isaiah into our passage. Because of time and other constraints, Pam and I haven't been able to do Christmas cards this year, so count this as a Christmas card to to tell us thy phalanx, and uh, among other things, of course. Every message. is dedicated to our Lord Jesus Christ, and every message is one in which we dedicate ourselves to him. Psalm 31.5, entrust our spirit to him. Proverbs 4.26, we give our heart to him. Romans 12.1, we present our body to him. And that pretty much covers our commitment. The Doctrine of the Mystery, Part 8, today will be called The Great Intention, something you've heard about before, something Pastor Brown has spoken on effectively before also, and there'll be many other passages that we'll be discovering today. Bear in mind that the first words of the Greek Bible are N-R-K, and that the word N-R-K Paul the Apostle in Colossians 1.18, in connection with creation of the heavens and earth and the reconciliation of them, calls Christ Archae, the beginning. And as we've been discovering, he is the beginning and the end. And Archae, therefore, is the first phrase, it's a prepositional phrase that opens the Bible. The last word in the Greek Bible, in the best translations, is panton, P-A-N-T-O-N. And that means all. The whole Bible is encompassed in these three words. N-R-K, Panton. In Christ, all. Everything. And that's the great intention of God. That's the mystery of God's will. That is what we call the external objective of God, the divine missions. And that's the sum of the whole Bible right there. That's simplicity. In a sublime way. In Christ, everything. That's God's plan. We've seen this unfolding in Ephesians 1. Because Jesus is called R.K. In Colossians 1.18, in connection with creation, the phrase is definitely translated in Christ. And we're pushing toward Ephesians 1.10, in which that great intention is shown that God would sum up Anakephaleao, or bring under the headship of Christ everything. Tapanta, that means everything without exception in all of time, all of creation, heavens and earth. Colossians 1.16 also brings in whether thrones, dominions, powers, principalities, angelic, human beings, as well as all things in the heavens and on earth. All of this in Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 1.16, 1.18, all refer back to the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1, which is both the beginning act of God and the end act of God. The end act of God is that in Christ there will be everything, and he will comprise all things. That's the message of the Bible. 
The summary of the Bible is in Christ all. This is the objective again of the divine missions. This is the mystery of God's will. And that which Isaiah in a passage often associated with Christmas calls the great intention in the Greek text. We've been discuss- discussing in doing and living theology, Micah 5.2, another verse often associated with Christmas. And it says in Micah 5.2, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are considered insignificant among the tribes of Judah, one will come from you to me. This is God speaking. That means one will come from you to me, having accomplished a divine mission, of course to be ruler over Israel. Pilate was correct to put that placard above Jesus' head on the cross and say, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He didn't know that Jesus was also the high priest who had offered a sacrifice that would take away the sin of the world in its totality and that he would be the priest and the offering as one. Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are considered insignificant among the tribes of Judah, one will come from you to me to be ruler over Israel. His going forth, that's his divine procession, is from antiquity, even from eternity. From a place in Judah considered most insignificant comes one whose procession is eternal, whose generation from Yahweh and whose beginning from God his Father is eternal, even as his saving reign or kingdom is universal. So from an insignificant place comes one with universal saving significance. Complementing this prophecy is Isaiah 9. Now, this passage is often associated, and I think rightly so with Christmas, but the Greek text is a little different than you see it in Christmas cards. Isaiah 9, 6 in your English translation is really 9, 5 in the Greek translation. Don't be confused. Isaiah 9, 5, which is 6 in your translation, says, because a child is begotten for us. A son is given to us. The authority, we could translate that as Authority, but we could also translate it as beginning. It also means rule or kingdom or sovereignty. It's that word right there in the Greek text. The beginning, which means the sovereignty, the authority. We could even call it the kingdom. Will be on his shoulder. Please notice that phrase. Because a child is begotten for us, a son is given to us. The authority will be on his shoulder. He will be called by the name, and this is the Greek text again, messenger of the great intention. For I will bring peace upon the rulers, peace and health upon him. And then verse 7 in your text, which is 6 in the Greek, his authority is great and there is no boundary for his peace. Upon the throne of David, his kingdom shall succeed and be upheld with righteousness and justice from this time to the ages. 
the zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish these things. I'm going to expand it a little bit. Same passage, expanded with a little bit of commentary here. Because a child is begotten for us, a son. And this verse goes right into Hebrews 1-2. God has spoken in these last days in a son. This is the son, the son. Because a child is begotten for us, a son is given. And this is where John takes up in 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, gave him to us. The authority, or hey, arche, we can call it the sovereignty, but we can also call it the beginning, will be on his shoulder. This is a prediction of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The authority shall be upon his shoulder. He will be called by the name messenger of the great intention. The Greek text has megales, that's great, M-A-G-A-L-E-S. Megales and then B-O-U-L-E-A-S, that is megales, Bules. Now, this is very important because this word appears in our Ephesians passage also. A lot of what happens and, and appears in the New Testament is taken from the Old Testament, even if it's a small phrase, even if it's a single word, and it gives it a lot of powerful interpretation. He will be called by the name messenger of the great intention. For I, this is Yahweh, the Lord speaking, will bring peace upon the rulers, peace and health upon him. That's a prediction of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is alive and well after his brutal crucifixion and death. His authority is great, says verse 7, really 6 in the Greek text. His authority is great and there is no boundary for his peace. It's talking about the universal horizon of the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross. Everything and every being in the heavens and on earth will be reconciled, whether things in the heavens or things on earth, whether visible or invisible, including those who sit on thrones, lords, rulers, officials, angelic and human. This is a way of saying universal Reconciliation. All the prophets spoke of it. All the prophets spoke of the apocatastasis pantone, without exception, Acts 3.21. Then finally it says, upon the throne of David, his kingdom shall succeed and be upheld with righteousness and justice from this time to the ages. The zeal of the Lord of the armies. Please notice that. Not the zeal of of religious people, not the political zeal of people. The zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish these things. Therefore, it's the unstoppable intention of God. One more passage before we get going. John nineteen seventeen. Now, I want you to think very carefully here, and I'll slow down on purpose. Isaiah 9, 5, the authority the sovereignty, the rule, the governance will be upon his shoulder. 
Now consider John 17, 19, 17, carrying his own cross. Where? On his shoulder. What is the government? What is the sovereignty? What is the authority? It's the authority of the cross. Self-sacrificing love. Carrying his own cross, and we know that's on his shoulder. Jesus went out. This word is also used in Hebrews 13, 13, where we're supposed to go. Outside the camp. Outside the place where doctrines have been crystallized and dogmatized and made unattractive. Outside the camp of established religiosity and pseudo-piety. He went out to what is called skull place. Skull place. The Greek is cranio, which where you get the word cranium. K-R-A-N-I-O-U. Cranio. The Latin is calvary. That's the name for skull. Calvary. We know it as Calvary, the place of the skull, Golgotha. The beginning of the new creation of all things is on the shoulder of a child begotten for us, of the Son given to us. The sovereign authority of his kingdom is on his shoulder. It is none other than the authority of the cross. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of God's beloved son in Colossians 1.13 is not a kingdom built on force or power. It's a kingdom ruled by the authority of the cross, the sovereignty of self-sacrificing love. The throne of the king of kings and lord of lords is established in the righteousness and justice, Psalm 89.14, of the law of the cross. Again, what is the law of the cross? The answer, Lonergan's 17th thesis reads this way again. This is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and was raised again. Because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, but to convert those same evils into a supreme good, according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. By the law of the cross, the last judgment is an act of grace, pure grace on all of creation, all of created reality. The Son of God, the King himself, goes from an obscure place, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, to an even more obscure place, to Golgotha, on the way back to his father. He goes outside the camp altogether as the priest, not only the king, but the priest and the offering. For he has appeared once at the end of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. Hebrews 9.26. The great intention of which this child and of which this son is the messenger 
is God's irrevocable plan, God's unstoppable determination to be all in all. It's a goal called universal perichoresis, God in the universe and the universe in God. It's an objective that can only be realized when all things will have been summed up in the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, in Colossians 1.19, it says that all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. It doesn't say all the fullness of divinity there. Later it does, Colossians 2.9. All the fullness of divinity or deity or all that can be called God is in him bodily, bodily, somatikos. But in Colossians 1.19, all the fullness not only of divinity, but of all created reality is embodied in him, in the man Christ Jesus, the word who became flesh. This is the great intention of God. So Colossians 1.19, all the fullness means all the fullness of all that there is, divinity, humanity, creatureliness, creation, and time in him. God is not content to bring about a creation other than himself. He brings about a creation ultimately comprised of his son so that God can be all and in all. Bring that external creation into himself. So, because God is pleased to dwell in his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased means among other things, not that he was just pleased with him as a son, but that he was pleased to be in him. You see, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. I always kind of made the conclusion. I'm just a simple guy, I guess that if God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, then the world must be reconciled to God. And that's why in Ephesians 1:12 it says that we in Christ, they heard the word of their salvation. They were already in Christ when they heard the word of their salvation, the announcement of their salvation. All they had to do is wake up to it. It says that we're going to hit that. It's pretty astonishing in one twelve. in whom we first hoped, Paul speaking as a Jew, and then the Gentiles hope, and in whom, in whom, in whom, already in him, you heard the word of your salvation. And so God told you what happened to you. You're in Christ. The gospel isn't to get people saved. The gospel is to awaken people to the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. That has been wrought when he said to Telestai, look, I'm making everything new. He said from the cross. That's what to Telestai means, incidentally. One of the meanings, look, I'm making everything new. If you compare John 19.30, as we should, to Revelation 21.5 and 6, that's exactly what happened. God is the builder of all things, and he uses no tool but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I call it instauration. More on that down the road. Now, Jesus began to announce the great intention with his first sermon. 
It's a sermon that uh, the churchgoers hated. In fact, they thought, well, let's go stone him to death and throw him into a pit. Talk about not liking a message. But in Luke 4, he quotes Isaiah. Once again, we're weaving Isaiah in. Isaiah, this time, Isaiah 61, 1 to 2. In Luke 4, Jesus stands up and he says, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to announce, there he is, the messenger of God's great intention, to announce the good news. The good news is God's great intention. It isn't just about personal salvation. It's about making all things be comprised of this person who's speaking right there in that synagogue. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to emancipate those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This is how Jesus interpreted his mission in terms of Leviticus 25, 8-17, called the year of the Jubilee, when all debts were forgiven. When we are forgiven our debts and we forgive others of their debts, that's the year of Jubilee that goes on forever and ever. A year of freedom, celebration, forgiveness. And Jesus conceived of this Jubilee as his mission and the initiation of the Messianic Age of Freedom. Now, by using terms like preaching the good news to the poor, proclaiming release to the captives, and emancipation to the oppressed, Jesus is not proclaiming a narrow socialistic vision that only pertains to the politically oppressed and the socially downtrodden and the economically poor. That's not his intention here. The liberation that he speaks of is from the crushing oppression of sin that makes everybody poor, that has impoverished the entire human race and imprisoned all of humanity and all of creation. Please don't misunderstand me. This is not to say that the socially and politically oppressed and the economically impoverished should be forgotten, not by any means. But it is, to, it is to say that Jesus' mission was perceived rightly by him to have universally liberating impact. Now, we've seen this in other occasions, all the way back at the farm. Jesus' message suggests that this liberation and salvation extends beyond the border of Israel. He uses illustrations on purpose. that must have stung the churchgoers there, the synagogue goers with Elijah being sent to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon, outside of the borders of Israel, Luke 4.27, 4.26. And to the Syrian general, a general in the Syrian army, he sent Elijah, Elisha rather, Elijah's pupil, to heal him of leprosy. So, this message was met with fury in the churchgoers because it extended beyond their borders. 
it extended beyond them being the only elect ones. This message meets with fury, passionate fury, among Christian churchgoers today who have gloried in their exclusive election from God and even gloried in the fact that others are outside. The Syrian general, Naaman, is certainly not someone impoverished, and yet he's among the poor to whom the gospel is preached. He was certainly not socially or economically oppressed. He was a general. So Jesus isn't speaking of some narrow socialism. The message of the universal salvation of Jesus Christ doesn't necessarily translate into any particular political reality. In fact, I think we have to stand at a critical distance from every political philosophy because that's not what we're here for. A true economy and the economy that will pertain when Jesus Christ returns is one of self-sacrificing love and grace. And you can't legislate that into a nation. You can't legislate that into a community. It's something that comes from the heart. So it's not just the economically impoverished like the widow. She was reached by the Lord through the prophet. So was a general who was not immune from leprosy. Jesus was announcing the great intention of God. Not only that, Jesus was the embodiment, the personification of that intention as he stood there and the fulfiller of it in his crucifixion, in his burial, in his resurrection and ascension, and in his present exalted session at God's right hand. The way that the child born to us and the son given for us announced the great intention is by his death on the cross. For it's by instauration or a transformation through the cross that the liberation of all of creation comes. Again, the great intention of which Jesus Christ, the child born for us, the son given to us, is none other than the mystery of God's will, which is to sum up all things in his son. And this is none other than the divine objective of the divine missions, the sending of the Son and then the Spirit. And so this is why I chose to deal with the divine objective as it's housed in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, the longest run-on sentence. Paul would have flunked the English structure. I majored in English and flunked English structure at the University of Vermont, flunked it. Paul, but I'm in good company. Paul flunked it here. He has the longest run-on sentence, one of the longest run-on sentences in literature. And I've translated it that way instead of chopping it up into several sentences like a lot of English translations do, and I understand that, but I'd rather just keep it a run-on sentence to defy all those people who flunked me. Imagine an English major who flunks the English structure, the structure of sentences. I never did get it right. Ephesians 1.3, 
Praised be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with the fullness of blessing in the heavens in Christ Jesus, insofar as in love he elected us in him before the creation of the universe to be sanctified and without blemish before him, predestinating us for adoption through Jesus Christ for himself according to the benevolent intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Ten times in this run-on sentence, we have in Christ, N-R-K, like Genesis 1, in Christ, in the beloved, in him or in whom, and it's always in Christ. And the heart of it is 110, but verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, in whom we possess redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of all trespasses, according to the wealth of his grace, that he caused to abound to us along with all wisdom and insight by making known to us the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will is none other than the great intention of which Jesus was the messenger, the announcer, the proclaimer, and the embodiment of that intention. For he said, if you, when you lift me up, then you will know that I am, that I am the great intention, that I am Yahweh himself, that I am the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, the vine, the true vine, that you may know. And if I am lifted up, I will draw or drag everything to myself. John 8, 29, And so he caused to abound grace toward us, along with wisdom and insight. How? By making known to us, verse 9, the mystery of his will. By making known to us just what that great intention is. That that child who was given for us, that son who was given to us, was the announcer of. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his benevolent intention, which he intended in him. For the administration of his household, literally, the administration of his household. The father's household is the universe of proportionate being. He administrates it by filling it up in the fullness of times with Jesus Christ. In other words, he not only fills up the universe spatially with Christ, he fills up all time throughout all time diachronically with Christ thus redeeming time, redeeming history itself, redeeming your past, redeeming my past, redeeming history itself. So it says in verse 10, for the administration of his household in the fullness of times to gather in and sum up the all things. Tapanta means everything without exception, all people without exception. All angelic beings without exception, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, lords, 
in Christ, in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth in him. Paul wants to make it very clear that when he's talking about all things, he means everything in the heavens, everything on earth. He takes it further in Colossians when he says things that are invisible, things that are visible, things in heaven, things on earth, principalities, principal angels, all things, all humanity in Christ. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the mystery of God's will. In whom it says, again, in verse 11, in whom also you were predestined to be made his inheritance according to the purpose of the one who effects everything according to the unstoppable resolution. There it is again, boule. The same word used for great intention is used again in one eleven of Ephesians. And it is this word boule. B-O-U-L-E. We have the word thelema for will, generally the will or the intention of God. But boule has to do with a determination, a resolution. Not like a human resolution. The divine resolution is unstoppable. And it's because everything is being worked by God toward that intention. Everything that happens to the most minute, from the most minute thing to the most momentous historical event is all toward and being guided toward this great intention of God. So for this reason... I can translate Ephesians 1.11, in whom you were predestined to be made his inheritance. You are his inheritance according to the purpose set forth by the one who affects everything according to the unstoppable resolution of his will. His intention is unstoppable. Because God has resolved to fulfill it, not man. As Isaiah 9, 7 says, or 6 in the Greek, the zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish this. Thelema, apparently the Lord of the armies was with the Navy yesterday, but that's a, the Army-Navy game. You know, 31, 7, God was with the Navy. Thelema is used seven times in Ephesians. Thelema, the plan, the will, the will of God. Seven times in Ephesians. Four times in Ephesians 1, 1 through 11. Every time in that passage, it regards God's will or intention, the great intention. In Ephesians 2, 3, it's used in the plural, and the plural weakens it a little bit. Because it refers to the intentions of the flesh, which is a supernatural power working on human, human beings, apart from the filling of the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.17, Thelema is used for the will of the Lord. And in 6.6, 6, for the will of God. In 5.17, it appears in an imperative where Paul says, stop being foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And you're beginning to do that even now. 
In 6.6, it's another imperative having to do with doing God's will from the heart, such as when you're working, doing a job, fulfilling a responsibility. You do it with all of your heart, even if it seems to be manual labor of some kind or something that you don't think you are or you think you're too dignified to perform. I learned this lesson well with Fred, my grandfather. He would always have this saying, go in and paint the furnace room, okay? The furnace room has two inches of ash and dust on the walls. He said, yes, right, go paint it. And then he would always say, it's got to be done. And then I would always go away cursing under my breath saying, yeah, it's got to be done, but why by me? But he had many jobs like that. When I was 14, every time there was a vacation in school, spring vacation, winter vacation, Christmas vacation, summer vacation, Fred would come up to the house and say, you're hired. And, uh, but I learned that to do it with your whole heart. I ended up painting that furnace room. I have to admit, I painted over a lot of dust. But the, play, the paint blended in so well. It looked like a, a, a modern paint job where you have this little textured paint. It was texture. Fred came in with his lucky strike and just took a puff and looked at it and said, all right. Now go mop and strip the gym floor. Okay. It's got to be done. Yeah, but what about me? But it's, you do everything with all your heart. You do it with all your heart. You're faithful in a little. He's going to make you ruler over much. That's a guarantee. Jesus said that. Faithful in a little. You might think it's a little, but it's the way to be a ruler over much. And that's what Galatians, that's what Ephesians 6, 6 is talking about. So Ephesians 1, 11. In whom you have also been made or predestined to be made his inheritance. That's the external term of the two divine missions, the two divine processions, the three divine persons, the four divine relations, the one God, the one God. His goal is to make you his inheritance. According to the purpose set forth by the one God who affects everything according to the resolution of his will according to the unstoppable resolution of his will, boule of his thelema. Now this little phrase, the one who affects everything according to the resolution of his will, is the one God, that he affects everything, tapanta, according to the resolution or the great intention of his will, speaks of the doctrine of meticulous providence. It's a, it's a doctrine that has recently been established and talked about and debated in the Los Angeles Theological Conference in January 2019. I have all the papers in it in a book. Meticulous providence, which simply means, and this is oversimplifying it, that the scope of the divine preservation, concurrence, and governance encompasses all that comes to pass without exception. I personally am a believer in meticulous providence, that everything that comes to pass is within God's plan and directed by God toward that ultimate end. 
There's many hackneyed sayings that people toss around. It makes me, one that actually makes me sick is that somebody's in a movie and they're supposed to know the Bible and they're supposed to be a clergyman or a clergywoman or something and they, and they say, God works in mysterious ways. Which is never in the Bible, of course. Or the Lord helps them who help themselves. That's poor Richard's almanac or something. That's not the Bible. God helps the helpless. That's called grace. He summed up everybody in, under sin and unbelief that he might have mercy on all. God helps the helpless. There's another one. Everything happens for a reason. And that's kind of true. But it's perhaps better to say everything happens within the scope of God's plan. Even things for which there doesn't seem to be a reason at all. I would even say especially things that were done with human intention or angelic intention for evil. Nothing that comes to pass does so outside of the horizon of God's providence and everything that comes to pass does so within the governance of God toward an entirely redemptive end. Even things that are intended for evil, I would say even especially things that were intended by evil for evil by creatures. As Genesis 50:20 says, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. We may say especially things that are intended by human beings and angels for evil because the crucifixion of the Son of God intended as the greatest evil by a conspiracy of men and fallen angels and invisible rulers of this cosmos was effected by God for the greatest possible universal good, including the good of those conspirators. That's the grace of God. That's the cross of Christ. And so, in closing, this ultimate and universal good is the summing up of all things under the headship of Christ who will comprise all things. Faith is the substance of this hope for reality. Faith is the substance of this. It's the presence of this reality already in your heart and in your spirit. Faith is the substance, Greek word hypostasis, of things hoped for. And in Ephesians, there's another overused catchphrase, and it's used by almost all theologians. It stands up pretty well, though. It's called now and not yet. The better catchphrase was coined by Eberhard Jungel with regard to the last judgment as an act of grace. And I love that paper that he wrote. He showed that the last judgment is an act of pure grace. And instead of that term, overused catchphrase, now and not yet, he said, even now, only then completely. The slogan applies to redemption as well as judgment because the judgment of Calvary is the judgment which will be universally manifested toward the justification of all of humanity. The last judgment is the justification unto life of all of humanity. 
and the rectification or the setting right of everything in the so-called last judgment. So we have even now the redemption resulting in the forgiveness of sins. But we have yet to have the redemption of our bodies which is to have redemption completely. The great intention of God is to sum up all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ, in his Messiah, and in his Son. Jesus himself is the messenger of this great intention. Jesus is not only the one who announces God's great intention, but he is the one who embodies it, and that's what's important to understand. For Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, is the embodiment of the great intention of God and, in fact, the embodiment of God himself. So the overture of this epistle, epistle continues, and we'll look at this down the road, but let's look at it as a preview, one twelve, So that we would exist to the praise of his glory. This ends the, the sentence, the run-on sentence goes on, two more in hymns so that we would exist to the praise of his glory, who were the first to hope in the Christ. Paul speaking here as a Jew. Jews were the first, but Gentiles also hope in him. In whom, verse 13, in whom, in whom you also heard. They were in him before they heard. In him you also heard the word of truth the word of the reality of what you are and who you are. Namely, the good news of your salvation. In whom, tenth time, in whom, tenth time, also you believed, having been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It doesn't say you believed and then were sealed. It means, it says, you believed, having been sealed, With the Holy Spirit. Our salvation isn't because we believed. Our salvation is because Jesus Christ was faithful in his meritorious obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. We are saved, justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And our faith is in that fact. Our faith is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for our salvation. And so it goes on to say, in whom also you believed, having been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment, even now, but then completely, the down payment of our inheritance until we come into full possession of it to the praise of his glory. This goes all the way back to 1-3 where the sentence began. Praised be the Father of our Lord Jesus. Praised be to his glory at the end. In Christ, they heard the good news of their salvation, which had been effected at the cross. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 sometime. By grace, you have been saved through faithfulness, not yours, not yours. The grace that you're saved by is the grace that is the event of the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ which he died in faithful obedience. By grace, you have been saved. You have been saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one man, Jesus Christ, through faithfulness, not yours, but his. 
Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 sums up the whole passage of Romans 1, 18 to 4, 25, the whole dialectic of contradictories there, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then in 5.14, you see in Ephesians, wake up, wake up. In in Galatians 2.16, it talks about in whom you believed. That is, having been saved by his faithfulness, you believed in him. And having become faithful in him, in Ephesians 1.1, because you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the promise. This is the great intention. This is the great intention of which Jesus was the announcer, but more than announcing it in sermons and proclaiming it in parables and demonstrating it in speech acts, he revealed it and embodied it in the crucifixion where he said from that throne, which is the cross, look, I'm making everything new. This is how I do it. So thank you, Father, that you've chosen not to make things right through the exertion of force or power, but by your self-sacrificial love, by the giving of your son, by the begetting of the child for us and the giving of the son to us. You reconciled your enemies through his death. What a glorious love this is. Grant us the grace as we proceed from here. To live not in the self-assertion of arrogance and pride, but in the self-transcendence that lives in an unimaginable love, in a love that's impossible to show unless it's poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We ask this impossible possibility to you, Father, for whom nothing is impossible. And we do so in Jesus' name.